Well, let me also say good morning to you. Uh, Good morning to those of you who are here and good morning to those of you who are watching online with us. I just also want to say a quick thank you to those of you who took the time to fill out the survey that we sent to you. We are making plans for the fall and uh, just encouraged to have you participate in that with us. So looking forward to a great fall ahead. A reminder, the church is not closed. The church is not canceled. God continues to do his work. We are looking to do some baptisms uh, as kind of our kickoff in the fall. So if that describes you, if you are in a place where you are ready to pursue uh, that step in your faith, that you are ready to get baptized, I would encourage you just to let us know at the church. Uh, you can just send me an email if you would like, lee at crossridgechurch.ca. would love to have you participate in that uh, with us. We're looking to do that on September the 13th. So that's going to be exciting. Uh, this morning, though, we are continuing our look at the book of Proverbs. Uh, we have been making our way through the first nine chapters of this great book together. And today we come to Proverbs chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible with you this morning, do want to encourage you to open it to Proverbs chapter 6 so that you can follow along. As we've been seeing throughout these weeks and through these opening studies, the book of Proverbs is an immensely practical book. It deals with the kinds of issues and situations that we all encounter in our day-to-day lives. I sometimes hear the criticism that my preaching is not practical enough, so I want to rectify that with you this morning with a very practical message. I entitled this message, How to Ruin Your Life in Four Easy Steps. I mean, it doesn't get much more practical than that, does it? So I'm going to outline for you four ways that you can ruin your life. But the great thing actually about these ways that you can ruin your life or these steps to ruin your life is that you don't have to even do them in order. You can start wherever you want on the list. And even better than that, you don't even have to do all four steps. You can ruin your life by concentrating on just one of the four. But of course, if you really want to ruin your life, You should do all four. Proverbs chapter 6 highlights four ways we can ruin our lives. It doesn't exactly word it like that. But if you read through this chapter, you will see that there is a theme that ties all of it together. And that theme is this idea that we can do damage to ourselves. Now, the heading for chapter 6 in my Bible says, Practical Warnings. Those headings, of course, are not part of the original text. They are put there so that we might have a sense of what to expect as we are reading. I'm not sure why Bible publishers don't consult me on these sorts of things, but if someone did ask me to provide a chapter heading or summary for Proverbs chapter 6, I think I would summarize it with this quote from John Wayne. Life is hard. It's harder if you're stupid. That's the basic theme we are running with this morning. Proverbs 6 is about self-inflicted wounds. Now, we're going to read the chapter in chunks this morning. So let's start by reading verses 1 to 5, and and then we'll summarize each of them as we go. Verses 1 to 5 say this. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor have given your pledge for a stranger. If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. 
for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. And I would summarize those first five verses by saying that the first way to ruin your life is by making unwise financial decisions. Verse one says, my son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger. So what exactly is that? What does it mean to do those things? What does it mean to put up security for your neighbor or give a pledge for a stranger? Well, the basic meaning is that you take your collateral and you use it to guarantee someone else's debt. If you read through the book of Proverbs, you will find that it contains repeated warnings against doing this. So Proverbs 17, verse 18 says, One who lacks sense gives a pledge and puts up security in the presence of his neighbor. In Proverbs 22, we get this straightforward command. Be not one of those who gives pledges, who put up security for debts. This is seen as an unwise thing to do. In Proverbs 20, we're given a visual of what this type of arrangement might have looked like. It said, take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger and hold it in pledge when he puts up security for foreigners. Now, you have to know that in the ancient world, the way you guaranteed a loan was to give your garment as a symbolic gesture that you were on the hook for the debt. Now, you wouldn't have had a closet full of clothes from which you could choose. You would have had one outer garment, and to give that as security or collateral would mean that you would have no protection from the elements. And so you're literally giving your life away as collateral, your only sense of protection. The idea was that your life now literally belonged to your creditor and you will not get it back until you've paid your debt in full. This is why the Bible says things like the borrower is servant or even slave to the lender. The situation that's described here in Proverbs 6 is that you've become liable for someone else's debts. You've put up your security, your pledge, your collateral to guarantee the payment of someone else's debts. That's a foolish thing to do. Commentators are divided in terms of the modern application of this this principle. Do these verses forbid a practice like co-signing a loan for someone? Maybe. Not sure it's an exact parallel, but I would say that that what we find in these verses is that they warn us in the strongest terms possible about taking on any debt that places us in a position of financial jeopardy. It's a self-inflicted wound. Listen to the way verse 2 goes on to describe the situation. If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth. See, when you enter into these types of arrangements, you are snared or caught or trapped. In other words, you get into these kind of arrangements easily, but you don't get out very easily. According to verse 2, you get in by the words of your mouth. And we know this to be true today. I mean, credit is very easy to come by in our day. You just sign your name on the bottom of a piece of paper, and that's about it. 
Now, I know money is cheap right now, so, you know, what's the big deal? Well, these verses remind us that we ought to think very carefully about entering into any kind of arrangement that puts us or might put us in a position of financial jeopardy down the road. Now, I know that debt is kind of a necessary evil in our day. I know that most people don't have the resources to purchase a home, for instance, without taking on a mortgage. I understand all of that. But I also know that some of you are living with financial bondage that you shouldn't be. You've got a lifestyle that doesn't really match your income. You've got too much house or too much car. You've just got too much debt. And you can get away with that for a while, but the walls will start to close in on you. These verses tell us that you get into debt easily, but you don't get out of it easily. Now, the good news is that the passage doesn't just sort of leave us stuck there. It doesn't just say, look, you've got into a foolish arrangement. Too bad for you. It tells us specifically how to get out from under these types of situations. Now, I know this doesn't apply to all of you. But if you have put yourself in a bad financial situation, there are two practical things you need to do. The first thing you need to do is to humble yourself. Verse 3 goes on to say, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you've come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, plead urgently with your neighbor. Now, it's not entirely clear which neighbor you're supposed to go to and plead with. Is it the neighbor that you've put up the pledge for? You just Are you supposed to go to them and say, look, I shouldn't have done that. I put myself at risk here. Or are you supposed to go to the neighbor that you've given the pledge to and say, look, I got into this. I shouldn't have got, I have to get out. Either way, you've got to go to the person and plead your case. Look, I entered into this foolishly and I need to get out of it. Now, I've worked with enough individuals and couples who are trapped in a cycle of debt to know that one of the chief things that prevents people from getting out of their situation is pride. Nobody, nobody likes to admit they can't afford something or that they've been living above their means. They've gotten in over their heads. But if you are not willing to humble yourself, you won't find your way out. I remember talking with, with one man who was sinking under the weight of a car loan that he had taken on. And that car loan, that car, that vehicle represented the appearance of success. And the thing he found most difficult in getting out of it was just pride. I don't want to look like a failure. I don't want people to ask me those questions. Hey, what happened? Look, sometimes you have to downsize. Sometimes you just have to humble yourself and say, look, we've been living above our means. We can't afford this. We can't afford this lifestyle, these vacations, that vehicle, this much house. Humbling yourself is hard, but pride will ruin you financially. And there may be something in your life. You just need to humble yourself. Admit you can't afford. There's no shame in doing that. And you will spare yourself the misery of unnecessary debt. Second thing you need to do if you find yourself in financial jeopardy is to take immediate action. The end of verse 3 says, go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Verse 4 then goes on to say, give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. 
Don't take a casual approach to the debt that has accumulated. Don't put this off. Don't say next year or next month or even next week. Get things settled right away. This is probably even more important in our day because of the power of compound interest. Now, I know this is not a financial seminar, and if it was a financial seminar, I'm not a financial guru, so you probably wouldn't listen to me. But compound interest can either work for you or against you. Now, when it works for you, your money grows at an exponential rate. But when it works against you, your debt snowballs. And credit card companies love it, love it when you just make the minimum payment. And when you do that, you end up getting trapped in this cycle of debt. So the reminder here is don't take a casual attitude towards debt. Take immediate and necessary action to free yourself before you are sunk under the weight of your foolishness. That's what Solomon is saying to his son. That's what he's saying to us. There's a second step or a second way to ruin your life, and that is by being lazy. We see this in verses 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The sluggard is without question my favorite character in the book of Proverbs. Two of my favorite Proverbs about the sluggard are found in Proverbs chapter 26. Proverbs 26, 14 says, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard in his bed. It's just a great picture, isn't it? I mean, you just imagine him going from side to side, kind of creaking with every turn. And then Proverbs 26, 15, the next verse says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. I mean, there's just something about that picture that sums up the problem with being a sluggard. This guy is so lazy, he can get his hand into the cookie jar, but he he just can't expend the energy to to pull the cookie out and bring it to his mouth. Now, I know on the grand scale, laziness maybe seems like a really small issue, right? Right? Now, sloth is listed as one of the seven deadly sins, but I think for most of us, we think that's small potatoes stuff, right? Just being lazy. The Bible tells us otherwise. The Bible highlights the serious financial and spiritual consequences associated with laziness, with being a sluggard. The focus of this passage is on the financial side of things. And the problem is summed up nicely in verses 10 and 11, where it says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, I know it's summer. Hopefully, you've been able to take some time off work and rest and be lazy. Right? We do need that. These verses are not speaking about that. But if I were to sum up what these verses are saying, I'd put it this way, that small surrenders lead to big consequences. I mean, you see the sluggard's reasoning. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, right? Just push the snooze bar one more time. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal. 
Not wanting to go out and plant the seed while it's raining isn't the end of the world. I mean, there's always tomorrow. And who wants to gather the harvest in the extreme heat, right? But these small surrenders are deceptive. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner comments on this verse by saying this. The sluggard does not commit himself to a refusal, but deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. So by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away, right? By inches and minutes, the opportunity slips away. That's how life works. You make those small surrenders and they end up having huge consequences. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands. Poverty will come upon you like a thief and want like an armed man. Two different words are used here to describe what happens to the person who makes these small surrenders and fritters away their opportunities. It says, firstly, that poverty will come upon you like a robber. Other translations use the word thief. The idea is that poverty kind of sneaks up on you like a thief. You've just been making these small concessions, and suddenly, before you know it, while you're sleeping or not paying attention, the thief is there to take thought was yours. The second half of the verse intensifies what happens. It says that want comes upon you like an armed man. And the idea is that poverty sort of initially creeps up on you when you're not home, like a thief. But if you just continue to neglect working on it or neglecting work, it just kind of comes later, kicks the door in and takes everything you have. Now, look, it's important to remember that, again, the goal of this instruction in Proverbs is not simply to shame you, not just to say, oh, see, this is your own fault. You made your own bad lie in it. Notice how these words are introduced in verses 6 to 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise or become wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. The goal here is that we might go out into nature, that we might take a look at the ant and learn and become wise. The ant that's in view here is probably the harvester ant, which is found everywhere in Palestine. These ants store grain in their nest. They're a a picture of diligence and industry. They don't need a supervisor standing over their shoulder telling them to work. They just work instinctively. Now, I know we like leisure, but we were created to work. There's a reason it's called the Protestant work ethic. It's because historically, Christians have understood the importance of work. Now, I know it's tough to find a job right now. Who knows what's going on with the economy? I've talked with a number of high school graduates and college students who found it difficult to find employment this year. You know, I've also talked to a number of employers who've said it's actually tough to find people who are really prepared to work and work hard. I think we're quickly losing our way in understanding simple truths like the connection between effort and reward. One of the most insightful books I read in the last decade is entitled The Narcissism Epidemic. And the subtitle of that book is Living in the Age of Entitlement. That's the age we're living in. 
I'm not trying to sound like an old curmudgeon when I say this, but when you just sort of give your kids whatever they want without requiring them to work, you're contributing to that sense of entitlement. You're raising those who will later say, oh, you know, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, no big deal. Everything's just given to me anyway. The biblical teaching on this is straightforward. Proverbs 20, verse 4 says this. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Right? So if you don't put the work in on the front end, don't expect any results in the future. If you don't study now, don't expect that you're going to have a great exam score. No matter how fervently you might pray right before the test, Lord, please just give me some words to put on this thing. It doesn't work that way. Maybe you get lucky sometimes, but laziness always comes back to bite you. The Apostle Paul said it this way in the New Testament, for even while we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You want to know how to ruin your life? Make unwise financial decisions and be lazy. That's your winning combination. But there's a third way to ruin your life, and that is by failing to keep a tight rein on your tongue. This comes from verses 12 to 19. Hear those verses. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken without or beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, there's more in those verses than just references to our speech or our tongue, but it is one of the dominant themes. Verse 12 mentions crooked speech. Verse 14 refers to sowing discord. Verse 17 says the Lord hates a lying tongue. Verse 19 says God hates a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. You know, there are multiple ways to sin with our mouths. Everything from gossip and slander to taking the Lord's name in vain. We could come up just with a a catalog of ways that we sin with our words. But the focus of our message is on ways to ruin our lives. So I want to give you a principle related to this. And that principle is that the course of your life is directed by your tongue. Now, this principle can work positively or negatively. We're trying to figure out how to ruin our lives. Let's Let's keep it on the negative side, shall we? Here's what it says in James chapter 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. 
The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Our tongues direct the course of our lives. Those things that we say end up determining that path which we will walk. So let's come back to our passage. Let's just focus our attention on verse 15 for a minute. Verses 12 to 14 tell us that a wicked person is someone who goes about with crooked speech and sows discord. And then verse 15 states what the result of that will be. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Why will calamity come? Because of the way he's operated with his mouth, because of his words. It's a pretty dire warning, but we've all seen these things happen. I mean, think about the relationships that have been ruined because someone could not control their tongue. Think about careers that have been lost because someone said the wrong thing or said the wrong thing at the wrong time. Think about reputations that have been destroyed because someone sent an email they shouldn't have sent or tweeted something they shouldn't have. Listen, I'm not a fan of cancel culture. I don't like this idea of sort of digging through people's social media posts from a decade ago to find things that seem out of step with current sensibilities. But there are lots of examples of people basically canceling themselves with their words. I remember back in 2014, there were a couple stories related to this. You might remember uh, them. You might remember Chip Wilson. He was the founder of Lululemon, and he would sometimes go on rants. And in one of those rants, he said that yoga pants don't work for some women's bodies. That was his statement. The very next day, stocks plummeted. He had to resign as the company's CEO because of words that he said. In that same year, Mike Jeffries, the CEO of Abercrombie & Fitch, said that the the reason they don't carry the size extra large in women's clothing is because he only wants thin and beautiful people shopping in his store. I don't need to tell you how that went over with shareholders. Proverbs 6 is about self-inflicted wounds, and the point about words is that sometimes our tongues are just long enough to slit our own throats. We can do great damage to others. We can also do great damage to ourselves with our words. But eventually, but but even more than just saying that calamity might come upon us unexpectedly, this passage warns us about the potential for an even more serious self-inflicted wound that comes about because of an uncontrolled tongue. And that is that it does damage to our relationship with God. Verse 16 says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Now, in case you're wondering if it's six things or seven things that God hates or detests, it's seven. This is known as a graded numerical sequence in Hebrew poetry. So there's seven things that God hates. And at least three of the things on the list have to do with our words. It's not very often we find words in the Bible that tell us that God hates something. But here it says he hates crooked speech. He hates a lying tongue. He hates a tongue that sows discord. The biggest damage we do to ourselves with our tongues is we do that which God hates. 
In the New Testament, Jesus gives us these very sobering words. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. By your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. You want to know how to ruin your life? Just make a habit of saying whatever comes into your mind. Final way to ruin your life is by failing to keep a tight rein on your passions. This is the largest chunk of Proverbs chapter 6. Let me read for you verses 20 to 35. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. The commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he's hungry. But if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. Well, these verses teach us very clearly that you can't play with fire without getting burned. Now, I know it's a cliche There's a reason that cliches become cliches. It's because they sum up universal experience. Plus, this cliche comes from verses 27 and 28 of this chapter. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? No. Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? No. You can't play with fire without getting burned. Now, it's not too hard to think of examples of those who've been burned by the fires of sexual temptation, really from all walks of life. I mean, we've seen high-profile cases of this bringing down politicians like Bill Clinton, professional athletes like Tiger Woods, religious leaders like Bill Hybels. But you don't need to look in the celebrity culture to find examples of this. It happens every day in the lives of average people. You could talk to any of them, and I can almost guarantee you that they would tell you that they got to a place they thought they could play with fire without getting burned. This is the deceitfulness of sin. And whether it's a real-life encounter or internet pornography, you cannot play with fire without getting burned. Now, once again, there's a lot we could say about the allure of sexual temptation and ways to resist it, but the focus of this passage is on the high cost of giving in to sexual temptation. It fits in with this general theme of how to ruin your life. 
So verse 26 says, For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Now there's actually a question about how this verse ought to be translated. The New International Version translates it this way, for the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread and the adulteress preys upon your very life. The original Hebrew of this verse simply says, on behalf of a prostitute unto a loaf of bread. So the verse is either telling us that the initial cost of sexual infidelity is cheap A prostitute can be had for the price of a loaf of bread, but it actually will cost you much more your very life. Or the verse could be telling us that along with all the other costs associated with adultery, disgrace, and all of that, there's also a great financial cost that ends up being paid. You will be reduced to a loaf of bread begging for your food. I know he's not exactly reduced to begging for bread, but Jeff Bezos did end up paying a $38 billion settlement to his ex-wife after his adulterous relationship was discovered. There's a high cost to adultery. Now, I'm not enough of an expert in Hebrew to argue for one translation over the other, but I've actually observed both of these things to be true over time. You can get wrapped up in sexual sin for what seems like a small price but it will always, always, always cost you more than you can possibly imagine. Solomon says here, it will cost you your very life. Says he who does it destroys himself or herself. It is a surefire way to ruin your life. What we think will produce the height of pleasure will end up producing the gravest of consequences. In his wonderful little book, The Purity Principle, Randy Elkhorn shares the list that he says he reviews periodically to remind himself of the high cost of infidelity. Here's the list. If he were to do this, he said, I would drag in the mud the reputation of my Lord. It would make me to have to look in his face one day and tell him why I did it. It would cause untold hurt to my wife and best friend. It would forfeit my wife's respect and trust. It would permanently injure my credibility with my beloved children. I would inflict hurt on my church and friends, especially those I've led to Christ and discipled. It would bring an irretrievable loss of years of witnessing to family and friends bring pleasure to Satan, God's enemy. I would lose my self-respect, discredit my name, and invoke lifelong embarrassment upon myself. There's a high cost to this. Now, listen, I know the focus of this message has been on how to ruin your life. By being unwise with your finances, by simple laziness, by failing to control your tongue or failing to control your passions. But I hope you will understand that the goal of this message is really twofold. The first goal is preventive. Ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Don't make these mistakes. Don't become lax in any of these areas. Now, prevention is important, but it's actually not enough. The reality is that we all make a mess of our lives. 
We all have the potential to ruin our lives. Self-inflicted wounds. And if not in one of these four ways, then surely in some other way. While the title of the message is related to how to ruin your life, my goal is actually related to how to restore your life. And I want to remind you that Jesus is in the restoration business. Read through the Gospels and you will find he's constantly interacting with those who seem like they were set on ruining their lives. It's an amazing story in John chapter 4 where Jesus has this interaction with a woman who's simply referred to as a Samaritan woman or a woman from Samaria. She's from the wrong side of the tracks. And as his conversation with him goes along, it turns out that her relational life is a mess. She's had five different husbands. She's currently in a relationship that we would describe as illicit. It's not her husband. And Jesus doesn't say to her, get that relational mess straightened out and you'll be good with God. She has a deeper need than that. Her deepest need was to be in right relationship with God. And in the same way, our deepest need is not to get our finances figured out or our work ethic or our sex life. Those things flow out of our relationship with God. And so our deepest need is to be in right relationship with God who is the source of all the wisdom we read in the book of Proverbs and all the wisdom that there is in the world. This is the burden of the book of Proverbs. So maybe even today, as you reflect on these vitally important dimensions or aspects of your life, your money, your tongue, your sex life or your thought life, maybe even you can see that your waywardness in these areas is ultimately a revelation of your waywardness in your relationship with God. And maybe today is is a good reminder that we ought to seek him in a fresh way. So let's pray together. Father, even as we have come before you today to hear your word, we are reminded that there are a host of ways that we get ourselves in trouble, that we leave the path you have marked out for us, that we do that, which brings harm to others, but also to ourselves. And so God, we pray today that our lives would be the overflow of our relationship with That our highest goal would not be controlling any of these things, but our highest goal would be to be in right relationship with you and have everything else flow out of that. So God, we want to give ourselves to you as an act of worship. We pray now, even as we sing together, that you would fill us with the joy that comes from knowing you. We pray in Jesus' name.